Welcome to Free the Seed. I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren. This podcast is for anyone interested in the plants we eat. Farmers, gardeners, and food-curious folks who want to dig deeper into where their food comes from. It's about how new crop varieties make it into your seed catalogs and onto your tables. In each episode, we hear the story of a variety that has been pledged as open source from the plant breeder that developed it. We'll be talking today with Frank Morton of Shoulder to Shoulder Farm about his lettuce variety, Hyper Red Rumple Waved, and about his journey in breeding lettuce from salad to seed. Frank and his wife Karen are the originators of Wild Garden Seed, a farm-based organic seed company based in the Pacific Northwest. And Frank has pledged as open source not only Hyper Red Rumple Waved, but all of the varieties and breeding populations that he has developed. Hi, Frank. Welcome to the show. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for inviting me, and I'm glad you're doing these podcasts. Yeah, thanks so much for being with us today. So Mm -hmm. maybe you could describe Hyper Red Rumple Waved for us. Okay. Well, it's an upright leaf lettuce. It's sort of a romaine shape, but it doesn't form a, a dense heart. It's very dark red. The leaves are puckered and savoyed. The margins of the leaves are wavy. That is, the edge of the leaf is not smooth, but it's sort of ruffled. It has good downy mildew resistance. I've gotten a lot of reports about its cold hardiness. And it's a lettuce that, I don't know, I think we introduced it about 20 years ago. So I've had to sort of refresh my memory about it just a little bit because it's a lot of lettuces back there. So it sounds like it was, it's was it been a while since it was released, but remembering back, how did you decide to take on this project of developing a new variety? Well, you sort of have to get back to where I was in terms of my farming life at the time. During that period of time, Karen and I were salad green growers, and we grew salads sort of on subscription for restaurants. It was sort of like a CSA, which is to say a restaurant was signed up for a certain amount of salad each week. And we would ship salad from our farm using UPS trucks and FedEx and the USPS. And we would ship salad to, well, we're in Oregon here, but we'd ship salad to Seattle, to Portland, to Boston, oh, wow. Washington D.C., Philadelphia, New York City, That's quite uh, a reach. and we did that. Yeah, it, it was quite a reach. Uh, we did that for oh about eighteen years or so. And during that period of time, I was learning about plant breeding as I was doing this salad thing. And I'm really an accidental plant breeder. Lettuce kind of showed me. Uh, what plant breeding was about because I saw my first off-type lettuce in a seed flat in 1983. What does that mean for a a seedling to be off-type? Well, I had started saving seeds for myself as soon as I started farming. And I had saved some seeds in 1982 from a variety called Green Salad Bowl. And one day in 1983, I saw one red plant in the middle of all these green plants. And I had planted thousands of these seeds at this point. 
And here in this flat among 200 green plants was one red plant. And I thought about it, and right away I understood that that had to have been an outcross to a red romaine that I was growing at the same time for seed. Looking at it, it, it looked like a, a red salad bowl. It had oak-shaped leaves. And I was thinking to myself right away, well, if I save seeds from that plant, I could have myself a red salad bowl, which in my experience would have been a brand new thing. And I thought that would be a neat thing to do. So I let that off-type plant, see, off-type plants are plants that are not the same as all their siblings. They are off. <laughs> and the normal advice when you see an off-type in your lettuce flat is you throw that thing away because that's not what you mean to be growing. It's a contaminant in some sense. Mm -hmm. But I immediately recognized that, well, no, this is an opportunity. This isn't something to throw away. This is something to save. <laughs> and that sort of defines my career, actually. It's finding things like that. But I kept seeds from it. So the next year, I planted out these 65 seeds. And yeah, there were some red salad bowl types in there, but what I really saw was the whole genetic spectrum that you see in plant breeding terms. This is the F2 generation. The cross would be the F1 plant. So two generations in breeder, from the cross. In breeder parlance, that's mm -hmm. right. So the second generation shows you the genetic recombinations of all the original parents' traits. There were green oak leaves, there were red oak leaves, there were green romains, there were red romains, every possible combination of the traits that you can think of in the original salad bowl by Red Winter Koss, all those traits were redistributed among these 65 plants. And that was when the light bulb really came on. It was like, oh, this is where new varieties come from. I see. So truly, this was a case of the plant showing me something that if I'd really thought about it hard, I would have remembered all my high school biology and my college horticulture classes, and I would have had a much fuller understanding of what was going on, but I just wasn't prepared to think of it that way until it was splashed out in front of me. That's why I call myself an accidental plant breeder. I didn't intend to become a plant breeder. I just saw this opportunity, and I realized that plant breeding could be a tool for my farming business. Plant breeding could be a method for me as a farmer to have new stuff that nobody else had. And since my customers were chefs at fine restaurants, that's what all chefs want. They all want something new that other people don't have. And so I realized that what I needed to do was grow all of these plants out to seeds and save the seeds of each one, and then keep planting them out. I was basically figuring this out as I went along. So I did that, and within three years, I had these distinctive lettuce varieties that I could put a name on. And one of the varieties that came out of that was something I called wavy red coss. 
And that was one that I stabilized and I started using it in my salad business right away. When you say that you stabilized that that wavy red cost, what does that mean? Well, when you cross two unlike plants, like a green oak leaf and a red romaine, it is as if you have shuffled the deck on their traits. And the next generation each plant that comes out of that is sort of like a new hand of cards that's been dealt out from this shuffled deck of genes. At least this was the way I thought of it at the time. And what happens is that with each generation, those genes sort themselves out again. Each generation, the amount of variation within each line is decreased so that if you keep selecting something that let's call wavy red cost, if I select for that in the second generation and then I grow all those seeds out and I select for it again in the third generation and I grow those seeds out in the fourth generation, they're all going to look sort of like wavy red cost with some outliers. With each selection that you do, assuming that you're selecting for the same thing each time, you develop a genetic heritage that becomes more and more stable and uniform with each passing generation. And so it takes about eight steps to get close to 100% uniformity. And so from any one cross, like that one that accidentally happened for me, Each one of those F2 plants could be bred out to become a different thing. I mean, I could have had 65 different varieties from that first cross. Some of the varieties would look quite similar. Some of them would look very different. But each one would be its own genetic entity, even if they did bear similarities to their siblings. How many varieties did come out of that that initial accidental cross? That's a a good question. I'd say there were at least eight varieties that I ended up stabilizing out of that. And most of them don't exist anymore. They were sort of stepping stones to the next step. Hmm. (laughs) In some sense, this was step one of my plant breeding with these lettuces. Because now... Because I had these, let's say, eight stable lines that I took from this, now I could cross those with other lettuces, like commercial varieties, Mm -hmm. and that would produce things that nobody had ever seen before, and they would be totally my own thing, but I could be incorporating the qualities of Uh, high-quality commercial lettuces in with my original gene pool here. And essentially what that did for me, well, I was able to create lettuce that had a completely different look. By starting, (laughs) by crossing commercial varieties with my own original gene pool, it assured me that I was going to have unique-looking lettuces. So that's kind of one of the cool things about it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the varieties that came out of this I called wavy red cos. And the original 
Red Wintercoss parent was very smooth. The heads almost look like bullets. There are no waves. There's no Savoy in a Red Wintercoss at all. But by crossing it with Green Salad Bowl, I created uh, romains that had a lot of Savoy sort of blister leaf kind of texture to it, which at the time seemed pretty unique to me. The cross that led to hyper red rumple wave was wavy red cross crossed to Valeria. Valeria was something new in the U.S. at the time. They were the Lolo Rosso type lettuces that have the extremely ruffled margins on them. One of the virtues of this Lolo Rosso variety was it had very broad leaves. The leaves had extremely ruffled edges on them, and it was a really dark red. It was darker red than my wavy red cuss. And being a salad guy in the 1990s, I wanted as much red as I could get. And if you could go back and look at seed catalogs from the 1980s and the 1990s, what you would notice is none of the lettuce is really red like we have today. Today, we have lettuces that are so red, they're black. In the 1990s, you didn't see that. You really didn't. Mm -hmm. I remember when I started growing in 1980, the reddest leaf lettuce you could find was a prize head lettuce, which was just pink on the top. There were no truly deep red leaf lettuces. So in what 1978. changed? A lot has changed since 1978 or 1980. And uh, what changed was the salad industry exploded. And what chefs always wanted was more color in the salad, as if green wasn't a color. Uh, no one was satisfied with how red lettuce could be. And it was a breeding goal of mine, starting, I don't know, probably starting right at the beginning, to make ever redder lettuces. And so this Valeria that I crossed my wavy red cost to, it was a darker shade of red. And when I made the cross, I was seeing all different shades of red in that. And the way that I selected it, and this was how my business worked, my salad business was really a seed breeding business where I was selling all the rejects to restaurants as salad to basically pay for the plant breeding. That's really how it worked. So I would make a cross. I would plant that seed out in a flat. I would see all the different shades of color in that flat, and I would transplant those plants into a bed to grow out for salad. But I did it in a way where I would start with the darkest red, and I would lay them out sort of in color order on the bed. So as I harvested them, I could study each plant as it grew so all the darkest reds would be in the same area, and I could carefully compare how dark red they were. And the way we harvested this for salad mix was by picking not the biggest leaves, but the leaves that were three to six inches long. And 
we would come back to that bed maybe twice a week to pick leaves off of it. And the, the lettuces might be there for six or eight weeks, getting their leaves picked off once or twice a week until they started to bolt, by which point I would have selected which lettuces best suited me. And I would mark these literally by picking up a stick off the pathway and putting it on the north side of the lettuce. And that was the only marker it had. <laughs> and uh, Pretty low tech. Very low tech, and nobody would dare touch <laughs> those sticks. <laughs> I didn't like people to help me weed because they would always move the sticks. Mm. So that's how I did it, actually. And it was selection under commercial pressure, you might say. As a salad grower, what I was looking for was the densest leaf. <laughs> the denser a four-inch long leaf was, the more that's the one I wanted. Because it would and be And things heavier? like being set, yeah, heavier. And you got paid yeah, by the pound? Yeah. If you got a four-inch leaf that weighed an ounce, that was worth a uh, dollar. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. I figured it out. Um, so, yeah, I was trying to improve my salad through plant breeding, and it was very direct. Yeah. And so what would happen is uh, at the end of the life cycle of this planting of plants, I would have a bed that would have a number of sticks on it beside the best plants. And at that point, I would clear the bed off, pull up everything that wasn't uh, what I wanted, and the bed would be left with a number of individual plants growing on it, and those would be grown out to seed, and I'd save the seed from each individual, and then the next year, I would plant them out again. And by doing that, I eventually came up with the darkest red, most savoyed, longest-lasting, most downy mildew-resistant, waviest along the margin, uh, heaviest by the leaf plant. And eventually one of those was called Hyper Red Rumpelwave. And that's how it happened. You know, I didn't know a lot about plant breeding at this time. In fact, I knew virtually nothing. I didn't really even understand the significance from a breeder standpoint of self-pollinated versus cross-pollinated plants. I did not at this point even realize how lucky I was that I had chosen lettuce as, you know, something to concentrate on. Lettuce is self-pollinating, and the significance of that is I could grow lots of varieties in one garden space without them cross-pollinating. They cross-pollinate about 5% if you have them side by side. If I wanted to make crosses, I could do it, and it was just a matter of growing two plants side by side and pushing their heads together while they were flowering. And then, you know, after about two weeks, you pull those heads apart before they have ripe seeds on them. And then you collect the seeds from each head. And you will find 5 to 10% outcrosses on those lettuce heads. And the crossing has been done by little insects called thrips, mostly, I believe. Thrips crawling from one flower head to the next and taking a little pollen with them and getting down inside the pollen tubes of those lettuces and spreading some pollen to them before they could pollinate themselves. That's basically how it happens. So you eventually have to take that seed head 
and grow those plants out and identify which ones of those seedlings are crosses and which ones are self-pollinations of the mother plant. And you can do it in a flat. And this is how I still do it to this day. I have my seeds in an envelope from the previous year. I plant a flat. And when they germinate, I look at the cotyledons first off. And if it's a cross between a red and a green lettuce, you'll see the red in the cotyledons of the green plants. And the, the cotyledons or are just the first the first little leaves the, that come the out. The first, the seed leaves, yes. So a lot of this, you know, you have to experience. You have to see it in action to fully understand how easy it is. <laughs> but once you have looked at enough seedlings and enough lettuce cotyledons and you have seen what they grow into, you begin to realize that the cotyledons will tell you whether a green lettuce was crossed by a red one. This works if you've saved the seed from a green-headed lettuce, then you're able yes. to see the red outcrosses on the cotyledons. That's right. That's right. And if you do it the other way around, say you've got a red lettuce and you've crossed it with a green one, but you want to use the red lettuce as the uh, mother plant, the color red in the cotyledon will be less because it's been crossed to green. It'll be half as red, basically. So so you can see that in the seed flat before any true leaves appear. So it sounds like you've spent so, a lot of time looking very closely at little lettuce yes, leaves. Yes, I have. All plant breeders have to look very closely at the plants that they're working on. My friend John Navazio likes to say you have to become a samurai of the species. If you're going to breed the best cabbage, you need to have grown a bunch of cabbage before, and you need to really know cabbage, you know. But, you know, to your point, yes, you really have to look at stuff. And um, that's how I did it. I did it in the garden, you know. this was None of this was done in a lab. None of it was done with forceps. It was done in a garden under commercial circumstances in all kinds of weather, by doing it outdoors, as we say, in the environment of intended use, I was able to to do all these things without ever having a white lab coat or anything like that. It, this is not, what I'm trying to say is, this is not really a technological enterprise. Mm -hmm. It really is experiential. So the process of making hyper-red rumple wave was one where I crossed my wavy red cos, which was, you know, a nice 1980s red. <laughs> I crossed it to a 1990s red, the Valeria. And out of that came reds that were e darker than either one of those parents. This is something that happens when you do crosses. When you cross two things that are unlike each other, a large number of the plants are in the muddy middle. That's what I call it. Mm -hmm. The muddy middle is where they're all kind of red, but they're not really distinctively different from one another. But then there are always the outliers, something that will be a very light red on one end of the bell curve and something that will be an even darker red on the other end of the bell curve. And, of course, what I was looking for was the darker reds. So by crossing two things that were red for their time, 
essentially I made something that was redder than what was commonly on the market. The next step, though, they see this is all kind of a building thing. My first generations that came from that first original cross, they were cool to me, but they weren't really where I wanted them to go yet. And it took, well, as my wife and I like to say, overnight success takes about 15 years. <laughs> and so about 15 years after I saw my first cross, I was releasing Hyper Red Rumpel Wave. And it, it was what I was looking for in a salad lettuce in terms of its intense pigmentation. So that was one trait I wanted. The other trait, though, was something really important to salad, and that is loft. The leaves, the individual leaves, because of their Savoyed leaf texture and the wavy margin along the edge of the leaf, that creates a fluffy effect on the salad plate. It also makes a lot of nice dimples on the salad leaf that collect salad dressing. And the overall effect is that when you put your fork in a hyper red, as opposed to something that's flatter, well, as opposed to the red winter cost, which was the original granddaddy of all that business, the red winter cost is very flat. You know, your fork almost doesn't go through it because it's so flat on the plate. With a hyper red, when you put your fork in it, it is so savoyed and stiff and thick, your fork goes through it. You know, there's really something there. And when you chew it, you feel like uh, you're just eating more leaf per bite. So my goal in doing this was a better salad leaf. That's what I was out for. And the components of that are the color, the flavor, the texture, the shape. So that's why I'm saying that this kind of plant breeding that I'm talking about doing is not technological, it's experiential. You know, what's my experience of eating this lettuce? Do I like it? Is it better than what I started with? All these things, they affect the salad eating experience. Yeah, so your your experience as a salad eater and as a, yeah. a farmer, those two things came together really well as a plant breeder of lettuce. Absolutely. You were, you were drawing on your experiences eating lettuce and your experiences being out in the field, seeing how things were performing there to be able to exactly. make the selections. Exactly. And it was not based on anything I learned in college or you know, a list of traits that I memorized someplace that are important traits. It had nothing to do with that. I was completely ignorant of all these things at that time. I started doing this in 1984. It seems like every 10 years, you know, <laughs> I'm going through a different phase of developing these things. But it all is dependent on using the best of what came before. That's the overriding principle. And using the best of what came before in terms of plant breeding is essential. That's what plant breeding is all about. It's what it's always been about. And this is why intellectual property restrictions on the use of plant varieties for further plant breeding 
is a very, very bad idea. Sociologically speaking, it's a terrible idea to encumber plants with patents that prevent them from being used for further plant breeding. And that's why I became involved in the open source seed initiative. You've been involved you've been involved yeah. in the open source seed initiative since its inception, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. In fact, before I ever knew that people in Wisconsin were thinking about this, I had also was thinking about it. Um, one of my sons was, he was a little computer genius. When he was 10 years old, he was part of a Linux community, you know. Linux, of course, is all based on open source software. And when I heard about Linux, my immediate thought was, that's what we need in plant breeding. Because at this time, this was around year 2000, by that time, almost every new lettuce had a PVP on it a plant variety protection on it. PVP does not prevent you from using those varieties for further breeding. But around year 2000, we started seeing the very first plant patents coming out because of Supreme Court decisions saying that you could patent plants. And it did not take very long. By year 2006, there were utility patented lettuces in catalogs that were serving organic farmers. And when I saw that, I'd already been thinking about this for about six years. And when I saw the patents coming in on lettuce, it was like, okay, this is getting personal now. But anyway, the, the point being that it's only by finding the best plants with the best disease resistance and best flavor qualities and keeping qualities and nutritional qualities it's only by identifying those and then using them as parents for the next generation that we keep this moving ahead. I mean, now people are putting patents on the color red. There are actually patents on red lettuces in which they claim that the red that they are patenting is a unique red that has a unique purpose and has never been seen before. And when I see that, I say, bull crap, that is not true. All these things have been seen before someplace. And in any case, you cannot patent something that is obvious to a practitioner in the arts of that thing. And red lettuce is so pretty plant, obvious to you, right? It's pretty obvious that you can keep making lettuces that are redder and redder. That is not a stretch. That is totally obvious. So when European seed companies started putting patents on the color red, I just knew it was all over in terms of if they were allowing that, then they were going to allow them to patent anything because there's nothing about that that isn't obvious. Have those patents so, affected you? Well, sure. Yeah, because... There are some really great lettuces out there right now that I dare not touch. I'll just call one of them out. It's Salanova, which was probably the first patented lettuce that made it to the United States. And it had been patented in Europe before it got here. And Salanova 
I'll tell you the honest truth, I have never grown it. I've seen it grown by a lot of people. I've seen a lot of pictures of it. Uh, but I have never grown Salanova, even though it contains, you know, highly desirable traits that I would like to access as a plant breeder. I just simply can't do it because if I were to involve Salanova in a breeding program and I would come out with a, a variety that had Salanova genes in it, the owner of that would uh, would sue me and would prevent me from selling that product of my work, and I would have wasted all that time. With, uh, with these patented lettuces that are... They're all over the catalogs now. Um, essentially, they're all dead ends as far as I'm concerned. It's like the only people that can work with them are the people that have the patents. And so like, what are they going to do with it? They're not going to do anything with it. They're just going to sit on it and keep doing the same thing until their patent runs out, at which point maybe someone will pick up on that material and will be able to keep moving things ahead. But for the 20 years that these varieties are under patent protection, we can't access their, you know, they have superior disease resistance. That's a really important trait for organic growers, and it's off limits to us. Genetics are, plant genetics as we know them are, it's, it's a collected experience of mankind. The orange carrot did not always exist. Somebody did that for us. And if it had happened that the orange carrot had been developed today by one company, and that company put a patent on that orange carrot trait, then that would deny the whole world access to the vitamins that come from an orange carrot. That's just not right. And scientists, readers, me, I have never invented a trait. The plants invent the traits. It doesn't have anything to do with the breeder. The plant makes the trait. It's something that's in the plant. And all we do is find it. It's a process of discovery. It's like noticing that there are moons around Jupiter. That doesn't make the moons ours. It's a discovery. It's not an invention. All plant traits are discoveries, in my view. They are not inventions. I guess varieties. We should, we should maybe are make a, a distinction here, which is that most of the utility patents that are being applied for or have been granted are what you're saying is that they are naturally occurring traits that the plants yes. produce yes. those traits themselves, and that those weren't things that any human thought up on their own and then made the plant do and absolutely right there are there are utility patents in corn and and soybean and cotton and other yes. plants which are genetically engineered traits like that's right the roundup ready trait and the bt trait that's which right. which were traits that were thought up by the companies that then did the the work to genetically engineer those crops and there was not a naturally occurring trait that those plant right. breeders went to to get that and um, i don't have a problem with that actually i mean i'll grant you synthetic biology and genetically engineered biology that's something that people did 
and that's something that a scientist engineered. I agree with that. Naturally occurring traits in plants, however, are not like that. If all they wanted to do was put utility patents on genetically engineered traits, that wouldn't bother me one bit. I understand that. I get it. A lot of technology and research there. But if they want to put, <laughs> if they want to try to patent a bean because it's a certain shade of yellow, that's just wrong. The people didn't create that shade of yellow. And there's undoubtedly other beans in the world that are that shade of yellow, or there certainly could be. Yeah. So I I have just a couple of mm-hmm. questions that I wanted to get in before we finish up. One mm-hmm. is, I don't expect that many people have actually seen a lettuce plant flowering, even folks who have okay. grown lettuce in their gardens before. And so I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could describe for us what it looks like when lettuce starts to flower. Sure. Lettuce is an annual plant, so it completes its life cycle in one year. So you plant the lettuce, it grows for maybe as much as two months or so, producing its leafy head, and then it begins to what we call bolt. And to bolt means to put up its flowering stem. And the stem rises out of the center of the rosette, It gets up to be three feet tall, at least usually, but I've seen lettuces that are six or seven feet tall when they're flowering. Some lettuces, when they bolt, they just make a single stem that goes up, and on the end of that, there is a flowering head. Some lettuces make small heads. They don't make that much seed. Other lettuces, they'll put up not just one flowering stem, but multiple flowering stems that branch. And in that case, something that started out as a single lettuce plant might grow up to be five feet tall and three feet across. They get to be really big. And at the ends of all the branches, there are these flowering heads. So the flowers on on the lettuce are small yellow flowers, about a half inch across. They're composites, which means that what we think of as a flower is actually a collection of about 16 or 20 flowers that make up the yellow flower that you see. And in lettuce, the female part of the flower rises up through a tube that uh, has pollen on it, whereas with many plants, the pollen will be on these anthers in one part of the flower, and then the stigma, which is the female part of the flower, will be quite separate from where the pollen is. And in those cases, those are mostly cross-pollinating plants. They're inviting a bee to come in and collect pollen, and at the same time to bump its head on the the female part of the plant, and thereby do a cross-pollination. In lettuce, conversely, the stigma passes right up through this tube, and it collects its own pollen as it emerges. So by time the flower is open, most of the seed there has already pollinated itself. And each lettuce flower lasts just one day, and 
all the pollination that's going to happen happens usually by about noon on that day. Then that the petals fall away. Eventually, you will see the seeds that are developing inside this little cup. And there will generally be between 12 and 20 seeds per cup. A single lettuce plant generally makes about an ounce of lettuce. There's about 25,000 seeds in an ounce of lettuce, something like that. So each plant produces about 25,000 seeds. It's a lot of seed. Seed is the best deal in nature. That's what I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially, especially things like lettuce. So anyway, in the end, that lettuce seed head puts out a cottony fibers coming off the ends of the seeds. looks just like dandelion seed. Mm -hmm. Everyone's familiar with what a dandelion looks like. And so on a lettuce, it's like a whole bunch of miniature dandelions. And in wild lettuce, when the wind blows, those little parachutes on top pick the seeds up and carry them away. In domesticated lettuce, usually the white fluff breaks off of the seed and blow away, but the seed stays on the plant. That's one of the hallmarks of domestication, actually. In a sort of a funny story, I once crossed some domestic lettuce to wild lettuce because mm -hmm. I thought I might get some interesting disease resistance and whatnot. And I produced a variety out of that experiment. <laughs> I thought I was going to sell 50 pounds of it to the old seeds of change. And I grew a bunch of it only to realize that <laughs> in an open field, all that lettuce seed would blow away because the seed was still firmly attached to the little parachute. Oh. And I had not sufficiently domesticated my variety, and it, we couldn't collect it. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So anyway, that's one of the things we have done is actually change the physical nature of plants mm -hmm. in order to make them harvestable for seed. In fact, I think it's considered the most important step in domestication is to produce a plant that does not shatter. Mm -hmm. It doesn't right. lose its seeds before you can yeah, harvest them. It doesn't them. lose its mm -hmm. seed before it can be harvested. And, you know, certainly in wheat, it was the non-shattering trait that made wheat something that could be commercially harvested long, long, long time ago. Mm -hmm. So anyway, in lettuce, you can see that trait very clearly in wild versus domesticated lettuce. And it's a good thing nobody patented that. Yeah, that's a great example. But, yeah. Thanks thanks for joining me today, Frank. I've really enjoyed yeah. our conversation. Thank you very much, Rachel, for inviting me to do this. I, I am honored to do it. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Frank Morton of Shoulder to Shoulder Farm and Wild Garden Seeds about hyper-red rumple-waved. Seed of that variety, as well as many others, can be found online at wildgardenseed.com. Be sure to check out our show notes with photos of flowering lettuces on the Open Source Seed Initiative's website at osseeds.org. Let us know what you thought of the episode by tweeting at osseeds. You can find us and like the Open Source Seed Initiative on Facebook to join an online community of folks interested in the future of intellectual property rights in plants. If you'd like, you can give us a review on iTunes, which will help other potential listeners find us. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. 
Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren, and this is Free the Seat.